as it were, an amphitheater where these people were ready to hear what this new preacher had to say. Gathered here at this time were rough fishermen with their hired hands, very cunning tax collectors and their cronies. Religious leaders like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were there who really were very curious as to this new preacher that had come onto the scene. There was a lot of hard-working tradespeople of all sorts, as well as mothers and children. All of these people, like you and I, ordinary people, but were very attracted to Jesus. They had come out of their towns and their villages, and they gathered together to hear this new preacher give what he called the gospel of God. He had been joyfully announcing this gospel Everywhere he traveled, he was telling them about the good news, and they realized that there now was a turning point in their country. This turning point was what Jesus referenced here, where he said that the time is now at hand. Things are being fulfilled, and everything was being accomplished because it all centered around this preacher, Jesus Christ. The gospel was from him but it was of Him. And I'll tell you, people started seeing some tremendous things as they were attracted to this message. People were being cured from sicknesses and ailments. There were people that had long suffered from blindness that now began to see the lame were beginning to walk again. People who were held captive by demonic spirits were being set free. And there were people who had sins that needed to be forgiven, now found those sins forgiven. People were finding peace. And all of it was because of the message that Jesus was preaching. Can I say to you that as we come to this juncture of Scripture here, we come to a book where there are five recorded sermons of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not all the sermons that He preached, but there are five recorded ones. One of them is here in Matthew 5-7. through 7. I've referenced it already as a Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 10, there is a commission sermon that Jesus gives to His twelve disciples. In Matthew 13, He preaches a message about what the kingdom of heaven will be like. In Matthew chapter 18, he preaches on the necessity of humility and forgiveness. And in Matthew 23 through 25, Jesus now calls down condemnation on the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. And then he speaks about his second coming. But some have looked at these sermons and said, well, all right, we read about these sermons that the Lord preached and we know the message that Jesus had to give but I want to know, why are there really four gospel records about the life and ministry of Jesus? We have this book of Matthew, we have the book of Mark, we have the book of Luke, as well as the gospel of John. All four writers are writing about the same person and his same ministry. And people say, well, why four? Why couldn't we just have one writer? Why couldn't we combine them all together? Because I want you to understand something, that every gospel writer writes about the same thing, but from a different perspective. You know, a few months ago, I went to a baseball game. It was the last spring training game with my wife and Larry and Melanie Hunt. We had a great time. 
Now, I'll be honest with you, if you asked each of us about the game, we'd all have a different perspective. My wife was talking about how hot it was out at the game. Larry was filling me in on all the changes that went on on baseball. And boy, there's some great changes in the game. Melanie was kind of concerned about the uniforms on the people. Me? I wanted to know where the hot dogs were. All right, now all of us had a different perspective. We're at the same game, but we all had a different perspective about that. That is these disciples in writing about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They come at it from a different perspective. So what is Matthew's perspective? Well, I want you to know that as Matthew writes to the Jewish people specifically, he is writing about Jesus as the king. And he's letting people know that this king has come and he has authority with him. And it is so fitting that everything that Matthew records is all about this, that the whole sermon of Matthew 5-7, through the whole book is all about surrender to that king. In other words... When you surrender to somebody, when these people and you and I surrender to a kingly authority, what Jesus is telling us is that surrender produces a righteousness. I want you to note something before I go any further. Look at the same chapter that I read, verse number 20. Notice what Jesus said here. And we'll look at this a little bit later. But he says, For I say unto you that accept your righteousness. Now, underline those words, your righteousness. How would you define how you are? That's your righteousness. You know what I hear a lot of people say? Well, look, I, I'm, 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 I know I got my faults, but I'm better than this person. I'm better than these people in the jail. I'm better than that person who just committed murder last night. But I'm telling you, that is your righteousness. Jesus is saying to these people and to you and I, that if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I guarantee that was a shocker to those people who heard that. Because everything that they knew about the scribes and Pharisees, they thought to themselves, these people can do no wrong. These religious leaders, they're out ministering the gospel. They're out helping people. They're out teaching the word of God. But I'm telling you, what Jesus was saying is, you have to look beyond the surface. Because though the religious leaders look so good on the outside and their external righteousness seemed like it gave them some extra pull towards God, Jesus is saying, look on the internal, which we really, we can't. On the inside, these people were corrupt. And Jesus is preaching this message to help us understand this. That as a king, he is sharing with us about this age that we live in and how we ought to live and how we ought to surrender to that king. But it's not a surrender just on the outside. 
I'm checking off all the boxes. I look this way. I act this way. I follow these things. No, no, no. Jesus cut across the grain and he said, unless you come to a place where your inside is converted, there's no way you're going to get to heaven. What an amazing statement Jesus made there. But as we open up this message of Jesus, Jesus gives nine statements that we call the Beatitudes. Every one of them begins with the word blessed. The word blessed comes from the Greek word, which is the word makarios, which has this idea of a deep-rooted joy, a deep satisfaction And ultimately what Jesus is saying here is that those who follow me, those who follow the righteousness that I desire them to have, will find themselves truly happy and truly blessed despite what the world tells you. Now I'm here to tell you that if you follow the world's prescription, you might find a little stint of happiness, but that'll go away. You might get into certain church circles and you may find, look, look inside yourself, these preachers might tell you. You've got that inner man. You can kind of will yourself to do well. And I want to tell you something today. There are a lot of pipe pop psychology preachers today that are going contrary to this book. But Jesus has said that if you want true happiness and true blessed, I am going to give you the prescription. What is that? Today we're going to look at the first two. Notice verse number three as we come to this aspect here where Jesus says here, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, For theirs is the kingdom of God. I look at this, the first point I want you to note here about this verse is, Those who come to God with nothing will gain everything. Listen to that. Those who come to God with nothing will gain everything. Now notice here, first of all, there's a certain attitude that has to be displayed, a certain heart attitude, if you will. Please observe that Jesus here is talking about those who are poor, but I want you to note that there is something specific He says about those who are poor. First of all, Jesus is not referencing a poverty of resources. You know, you and I can go to many places in the world and we can find deep poverty of money, food, and clothing. I've been to some of those places. I've been to places, I've gone to preach in a little country church in Cuba and when I got there after a three-mile horse and buggy ride, I asked to use the restroom and the preacher told in Spanish to his son, go get the toilet and put it over the hole. So the preacher can use the bathroom. I'm telling you here today, there are places and there are people who are lacking. They are poor in resources. But I want you to notice that Jesus is not talking about being poor in what you can hold in your hands. Notice he said, blessed are the poor. What's the next two words? In spirit. In essence, 
This is why I categorize this statement here is a proper attitude because it is pointing to the attitude that we have. This attitude states that as one comes to God, they in essence are stating these words, God, I am coming to you with nothing. But second of all, I want you to see something else special about this word. And in order to explain this word, I'd like you to hold your place here. And if you can with your Bibles, turn over two books to the book of Luke, chapter number 21. And I want you to see something very special. Luke chapter 21, and notice here, verses 1 through 4. The Gospel of Luke, verse 20, uh, chapter 21 It says, and he, again, that's Jesus, looked up and saw the rich man casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these of their abundance cast in of the offerings of God, but she of her penury, her, her, how poor she is, she's cast in all the living that she had. That's amazing here. Jesus is describing a time where he's standing by the temple and and for whatever reason, they would have the treasury box that was there by the entry going into the temple. And Jesus is kind of there watching as people are coming by. And first he notes that there is a man who comes and he gives in. The Bible says he gives of the abundance that he has. He realizes that what he puts in the treasury box, it's not going to hurt him. He's able to give that in, and he realizes that in his pockets and back home, stored under his mattress, he's got extra money that will keep him in good stead. But as Jesus continues watching, this widow comes in. The Bible says she had two mites. It is estimated that these two mites were worth probably about 50 cents. That's all she had. And the Bible says here in verse number 2 that it says that she, this poor widow, but she has two mites. She's poor, but she's got two mites. She casts those into the box. Now as she walks away, look at verse number 3. It says, of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow. Now, look right up here for just a moment. The word poor in English is used twice, and we don't see any difference But do you realize the Greek word is different in both verses? In verse number 2, this poor widow, she comes to the box and she's poor, but she still has something. Now after she puts that in, she walks away and Jesus says this poor widow had put in all that she had. Now this poor widow is somebody who no longer has any resources. In other words, she is now bankrupt. She gave of her livelihood. She gave everything that she owned. And when you go back to Matthew chapter 5, do you realize that when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not referring to somebody who come to God with something of their own. You and I must come to God with these terms. God, I have nothing. God, I am nothing. And I have nothing to offer you. And that's the spirit God's looking for. And I'll be honest with you, there's two spiritual ways that you and I can apply this. The first way is this. Is that if you are going to come to God for eternal life, 
may I remind you here today, according to the truth of the Word of God, you must come to God poor in spirit. You must come to God broken. No resources. Nothing in my hand have I to bring to thee. That's what God's looking for. You see, the gift of eternal life is a beautiful gift that is offered to every person in the whole wide world. God so loved the world. Put your name in there. But that gift cannot be earned. That gift cannot be worked for. That gift cannot be purchased. It is already paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way that you can accept that is by faith and coming with nothing. Spiritually bankrupt. You see, to be poor in spirit is to see yourself as you really are before God. You have nothing to commend yourself before God. You have no spiritual resources within yourself. You have no claim for God or His mercy. You are spiritually bankrupt. You are destitute like a beggar. In other words, the very same word that is used of poor is the same word that is used of the beggar that was at Lazarus' table. You remember that man who was there? He's nameless. All he's referred to is as a beggar. He has nothing. He's just waiting for the scraps to be thrown off to the table to the dog that is right there in the kitchen. He's waiting for something to be given to him because he has nothing. And if you're going to be saved today, if you're going to have eternal life, that is the way you must come before God. It's like a beggar before God say, God, I have nothing, I am nothing, and I come and I accept your free gift. I wish I had time to do this this morning, but in Romans chapter 3, if you were to look at verses 10 through 23, what a powerful scripture that tells you and I who we really are before God. Chapter 10 and chapter 23 provide us the capstones of the verses that are all in between. Chapter 3, verse number 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Can I say, you are not righteous before God. You may think you are, but the problem is, is you're comparing yourself with the person you're sitting next to. You're comparing yourself with somebody else who you know is really dirty, rotten. But I'm here to remind you that you cannot compare yourself this way. You must compare yourself this way. And when we stand before a holy God, here's the aspect. Oh God, I'm undone. Oh God, I am unrighteous. And how powerful it is to think that in Romans 3.23 that it says, For all have sinned. How do I know I have sinned? Well, as you look at verses 11 through 22, it gives a description of who you really are. You're not righteous. Your tongue has under it the poison of asps. Out of your mouth comes deceit and lying. Your feet are there to swift to to swiftly walk through and to commit such evil deeds. Your hands are there to commit evil deeds. And every part of our life, if we left it to ourselves, would bring us to destruction. And therefore, it is imperative that if we come before God, 
that we come before Him poor in spirit. You know the people that are poor in spirit? They're not offended when somebody says, you're a sinner. Because they say, I know I'm a sinner. Those who are poor in spirit are keenly aware of their spiritual inadequacy. They recognize the fact they have nothing. And they have nothing to offer before God. Oh, my friend, I want to tell you something. If you're going to be saved today, you must come broken before Him. Now, that poor in spirit applies to those who come to God for salvation. But may I say that that poor in spirit also comes and should come to those who are already saved. They're born again. You know, the Bible tells us that God deals with those who are of a broken and contrite spirit. You want to come before God as a believer? Don't come with pride. Come here today with this spirit and attitude of, God, I need you. God, I have nothing. I am there for you. The Bible tells us one who comes to God in a humble fashion, God will not reject. Now look at verse number 3 and notice here. It says that the attitude that they have is that they must be poor in spirit. But here's the promise now that is delivered. The promise delivered. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, preacher, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, that's the rule and reign of God. Believers today are presently citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But I want you to know that the fullness of that kingdom is yet future. And that those who come to God poor in spirit will be able to access that kingdom. You say, preacher, how can I be saved? How can I know I'm going to heaven? How can I know that I have eternal life? How can I know that when this life is over, that I'll be with God? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The attitude of God, I come to you. I have nothing to offer for salvation. I cannot earn it. I cannot buy it. I am nothing. And therefore, when we come that way, God then says, I'll give you eternal life. So notice here that those who come with nothing will gain everything. But secondly, according to verse number 4, those who are truly sorrowful will discover joy in life. Notice the second beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn. That's the attitude that's displayed. Now, there's some Old Testament writers that actually express this in different ways earlier than Matthew ever did. Listen to this in Ecclesiastes 7.3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Psalm chapter 30, verse number 5. For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Now you say, preacher, what does it mean to mourn? Blessed are they that mourn. What does it really mean? Well, when we think of mourning, we think of sorrow, weeping, crying, sadness. To us, mourning is typically expressed in times when we are deeply sad over something that has transpired in our life. Causes for mourning could be 
the death of a loved one. It could be broken friendship, loss of possessions, the illness of oneself or another loved one. It could be hardship of life or some disappointment that comes through. But we mourn, but many times in this life that mourning is there and then it's gone. But I want you to know this, when when Jesus said, Blessed or happy are they that mourn, There is something very special about this word. The word actually conveys a continuous action. It's not just a moment in time of sadness. It is a deep-hearted, a real sense of sadness. But please understand that when Jesus is talking about blessed are they that mourn, He's not telling you, that you just walk down around in your life with a mopey face. That's not the idea. I think as we look at our world today, it does not, people often don't understand this aspect of mourning. We live in a world today where everybody wants to be entertained. Everybody is seeking the next thrill. Christian circles and churches have made everything about what is it that makes you happy? And everybody is constantly searching about the happiness and the joy and the thrills and the entertainment. And our society has gone full that way. But I want to ask you this question. How many of us today are truly saddened? We're truly mourning. We're expressing continual sorrow over our sin. We're expressing continual sorrow over the corruption in our society. You know, I have to say that from time to time, we express certain moments of sadness and sorrow over those things. But I tell you, it is often short-lived. I remember when 9-11 happened, I was not here at this church, but I was an associate pastor down south of here about an hour or so. And I remember that day, as many other churches did, that that day and throughout the rest of that week, we opened our church for people to come in and pray. And I'll be honest with you, in the first few days, it was amazing the attitude and the spirit that people had. I thought to myself, you know, that was a tragedy that took place in Washington, D.C. and New York City. But I'll tell you what, if tragedy is what it took to bring a revival to America, then maybe this was it. But I'll be honest with you, that was short-lived. It was amazing how many people came in and they seemed to have this sense of sorrow. But then they went back to their everyday living with the thrills and the happiness and the joy. And I'm here to tell you today... Jesus is not a joy kill. Jesus is not talking to you about going around with a mopey face and just downcast all the time. But I want to tell you, the path to true, real joy is mourning. Blessed are they that mourn. Why? The promise is delivered. What does Jesus say? For they shall be comforted. Some of you are here today saved, unsaved, and you're trying to find a way for true joy and satisfaction. You're filling it with drugs. You're filling it with alcohol. 
You're filling it with all the thrills of this life. You're finding everything. You're looking at relationships to bring comfort to you. But I want to tell you something. Until you come to a place where Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, that begin to focus on their life and realize, Oh God, I am a sinner. I'm undone before you. Oh God, look at the corruption of our society. And we begin to realize the realities of this life. That is the true way to joy in this life. Every day as I come as a preacher, when I come to this pulpit every week, every Sunday, and I begin to preach, I cannot tell you the sorrows that are in my heart over the things that I learn from time to time. As I counsel people, as I talk to people on the phone, as I meet people, and I find out all the things that are going on, and I hide those things in my heart, and I bring them before God, there is a deep sorrow. But rarely... Will you ever see me come in here like this? Well, I gotta preach today. Now I'm telling you what, when I come in, I ask God for this. God, put a smile on my face. God, give me the joy that I need today. Because as I cannot see in your heart and you cannot see in mine, there is a deep sorrow for things that I have learned over the course of numbers of years and things in people's lives and things in my own life. And I come today and I have true joy, but it's first because I've acknowledged who I am before God. And I've recognized my true state. And boy, I look around in our society and my heart is sick over what's happening over what's happened on Friday night in our cities and Saturday night and the wickedness and the debauchery and the sinfulness and the wickedness and everything that has gone on, it makes my heart sick. But I'm here to remind all of us that until we come to a place where we acknowledge truly who we are, that first of all, blessed are they who are poor in spirit. If you're going to be saved and go have eternal life, you got to come with the right attitude, and that is, God, I have nothing to offer. I can't buy a ticket to heaven. I can't earn it. I'm not good enough. Just being in church this morning isn't going to weigh out the scales with God. I'm not going to find a way to have anything with you. But God, I want to tell you, I come before you poor in spirit. And then now as a Christian, blessed are those that mourn. Today we need Christians who are sorrowing over sin, not laughing over it. We have far too many Christians today that are laughing at all the dirty jokes and laughing at the television shows and laughing at the movies and having fun and yucking it up with all the wickedness that is going on. Where is a Christian who hates that sin and stands against it? If you want to be a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you must be somebody who has a deep mourning and expression of sadness over that sin. Blessed are they that mourn. As I close here today, I am reminded of something. And that is that Jesus began this with understanding how it is to enter this kingdom of heaven. You enter this kingdom of heaven first with the attitude of blessed are they of the poor in spirit. That is, I cannot earn it. I saw some time ago... Many of you are familiar when I say the word Auschwitz, you're here and you understand maybe what I'm referencing. Auschwitz was a concentration camp that was located in the country of Poland and it had become accessed by Germany in the Second World War. 
Auschwitz was a camp where many Jews found their lives were uh, terminated. It's estimated that between 1.1 million and 1.5 million people died in Auschwitz, and 90% of those people were Jewish people. But this camp was not just an extermination camp. It was also known as a slave labor camp. And as people came into any one given camp like this one here, they would come in thinking that all was going to be fine. Because as you notice the gate that is given here and was put back on this particular camp, it has these words written above it. It is the words, Arbeit macht frei. It means... Work makes free. In other words, as every person was walking into a concentration camp and read that sign, they thought, the work will liberate me and give me freedom. But I want to tell you something. 1.5 million people found out that was a lie. The Nazis made people believe that hard work would equal liberation. But the promised liberation was horrifying suffering and death. Can I say to you, there's a lie that's being purported out there in this world by the devil. If you work for eternal life, you can have it. If you're in church enough times, if you give enough money to good organizations... If you live accordingly, if you uh, obey the Ten Commandments, you can have eternal life. And people have this mentality of, when I get to heaven someday, God's got this gigantic scale. And He takes all of my bad things and puts it on one side, and we watch that drop down. But then we kind of hope that on the other side of the scale, as God says, oh, you were good to your neighbor on this day. Oh, you went to church this many times. Oh, you gave money to the church. How good. And we kind of hope that our good outweighs our bad. Could I say to you that nowhere in Scripture are we told that that's how to get to heaven? That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because if you're going to get to heaven, you're going to get to heaven like every other person will, and you'll come realizing it's all Jesus, it's not of me. He paid the penalty for my sin. I'm accepting what He did simply by faith. It's of His grace. As Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. I'd like us to bow our heads, please, and close our eyes. Father in heaven, thank you for this blessed time we've been able to gather together. Thank you for the truth of the Word of God. I pray today that right now you'd be working in hearts. You'd help us here today as we talk about eternal life in this very important matter. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, may I just say to you here today that there's really only two groups of people in this world. Right now in this auditorium, there's only two groups of people. I know there may be different people with different color skins, different origins of where they were born, different economic statuses, but I'm here to just say to you, 
that God only sees two people, those who are saved, those who are lost. Those who are born again, those who are without Christ. And if you're here today and you say, preacher, I am saved. I'm born again. I remember a time when I asked Jesus in my heart and he forgave me all my sins. Then I'm thrilled for that. And right now, I just like to do this. I'd like to rejoice with you. If you're here today and you've accepted Christ as your personal Savior, would you just, with your eyes closed, just lift your hand up for just a moment. Preacher, I ask the Lord to save me. God bless you. You may put your hand down. Now, honestly, I couldn't see every hand. I don't know whether you raised it, and I wasn't specifically looking, but it's possible that you're here today and you could not raise your hand. Could I invite you to right now place your faith in Jesus Christ? Right now, you could be of those ones before you walk out knowing Jesus as your Savior. You say, preacher, how do I do that? How do I come to a saving knowledge of Christ? It is simply acknowledging who you are, a sinner. It's acknowledging the fact you can't do anything about your sin. It is acknowledging the fact that Jesus did everything for your sin. He paid your sin debt. And all you have to do is, by faith, receive Christ as your Savior. If you'd like to ask Jesus to be your Savior, you couldn't raise your hand. I'd like to invite you in what I call a sinner's prayer. Right now, I'd just like to invite you, while your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just right now, just ask the Lord in your heart to be your Savior. And here's the prayer. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray this, I'm going to say this prayer in simple phrases. And if you would mean this with all your heart and ask the Lord to save you, the Bible says you can be saved. Here's the prayer. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I cannot save myself. But I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. And right now, I'm asking Jesus Christ, God's holy Son, to forgive me of all my sins and become my personal Savior. Now, dear friend, if you prayed that prayer just now, can I say the best decision that you will ever make in this life is the one you just made right now. Close to 18 years old, I asked the Lord Jesus to be my Savior. And I'm telling you, I've had a lot of great decisions I've made in this life, but there's been none better than that one. And I promise you, I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm not here to call you out. I would not do that. But if you're here today and you say, Preacher, I just prayed that prayer and I'm not ashamed of it, I'd like to just rejoice with you. I'd like to just pray for you in closing. Is there anyone here today by uplifted hand? Preacher, I just prayed that prayer and I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Anyone here today? Just lift your hand for just a moment. Anyone prayed that prayer? Preacher, I prayed and asked the Lord to be my Savior. I asked Him to come into my heart. I'm going to call our attention here to those that are here today know that they're saved. My friend, I want to encourage you about something. We have a society which has gone into great wickedness. And we have a tendency in our own lives to follow in that path. And maybe today I'd like to encourage you to come 
to just kneel at the altar, if you will. Just right up front, kneel or stand or sit in the front row and just pray and ask the Lord, Lord, help me. Help me to be a believer that mourns over my sin, mourns over the corruption of our society. Help me, Lord, to do what I need to do. Guide me in all this.